0: Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning again. Well, this past winter, uh, we decided that we were going to show our kids Apollo 13, the movie. Uh, it's been out for 27 years, so I'm not ashamed if I spoil anything for you, but I'll just start at the beginning, okay? It's also a historic event that actually happened. So. One of the most intense parts of the movie, of really any space launch, right, is the launch. It's intense for the astronauts as they depict in the movie, but it's also intense for us, right, as the viewers. But have you ever considered what took place 57 minutes before the launch? Neither have I. We love the last minute, right? We love the last 10 seconds where it's 10, nine, Eight, and it goes to the launch. That's the most expi- exciting part. And that's what we're getting in the Gospel of John. We are at the story of most intensity in the life and ministry of Jesus. For 11 chapters, we have seen Jesus start his ministry, conduct his ministry, and now everything that we have seen so far is looking forward to the time we've been talking about over and over, his hour. We're finally at Jesus' final Passover celebration, his third. And theologians call this week the Passover, or sorry, the Passion Week. We'll be in this for a while. For 11 chapters, John has written the story of Jesus, and the rest is all Passion Week, the final week of his life and ministry and his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And it's the big emphasis of this gospel, and it's the big emphasis of all four of the gospels. So it's exciting. I want to jump into it. Before we jump back into the text, will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we again ask for your grace, that your words would come through my mouth, that your voice would be heard by your people, that your people, myself included, would hear, would respond, would have a heart transformed by your grace as we listened to the good shepherd through the mouth of this shepherd. Father, be honored in our time, transform our hearts, conform us more to the image of your Son, that we would cast aside our idols and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I will begin and I will walk us through the text this morning. We'll go through this short passage and then at the end I'm going to apply it for us. But as we'll see this morning that God deals with our idols through his great high priest Jesus who offers himself as the final Passover lamb. But before we do that I, I figured it'd be good to have a reminder of what we saw last week. Last week we saw that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and many Jews, they came with Mary to the tomb when Lazarus was raised and they saw what took place. The dividing lines in the sand have now been made. They're either going to have to believe in Jesus or they're going to have to reject him. Look with me again at verses 45 to 48 as it shows us this tension. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let them go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations. You can put your finger there. We'll come back to that. Well, when we see Jesus act, decisions are made. As a result of seeing what Jesus did with Lazarus, many believed, but some went and told the Pharisees, the principals, the teachers, what took place. There's two options with Jesus. The first option is we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. We believe that and we follow that. The second option is to go back to the shepherds of Israel who don't love the sheep but rather posture and protect themselves and their own interests, not caring for the needs of God's people, the sheep. These two results, there are two results in seeing the work of God. Either we have faith and repentance or we have resistance and opposition. And the Jews are used here positively for one of the few times in this gospel because they believe unlike the other parts of the gospel where they don't believe. The shamed shepherds of Israel, by contrast, who are guilty by judgment, of judgment by Jesus that we saw in chapter 9, because of their misleading and fleecing the sheep, are the ones the Jews go back to, though, that don't believe. So turning from sin is hard. Turning from what that which held, holds us captive is not easy. For the Jews who have turned to Jesus and followed and believed, there's abundant life we saw last week. It's available, it's received, it's lived out. But to those who follow Jesus, it also means that we die to ourselves. For those who do not believe, who do not follow, they continue to be enslaved by their slave masters. They're not free. Rather, they're in bondage. You see, they keep going back to that which holds them captive. The leaders, they don't know what to do. And so they, like good Baptists, they form a committee. The chief priest even asks the question, what are we to do because he performs so many signs among the people? What they finally understand is it's not about, or what they finally understand is it's not about the signs. It's about what the signs they point to. That there's something much more significant taking place in the work in the ministry of Jesus. So let's think about the signs that we've seen so far in the Gospel of John. He turned water into wine, where we have abundant life. And a, 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 an abundance of life and blessing that is inexhaustible that comes from Jesus. We have the healing of the official son, a non-believing family a non-Jew a Gentile coming to believe or Gentiles like you and I we get to believe in and come into God's family where Jesus healed the paralytic where Jesus gives us life by just believing his work where he fed the final sorry the 5,000 where there's an abundance of blessing again where Jesus provides for our true needs not just physical bread where he walked on water, where Jesus shows us that he can overcome and conquer the nature in which he p- created to provide for us our greatest needs. Or healing of the man born blind, where he gives sight to those who can see him for who he is as Savior. And as we saw last week, the raising of Lazarus, where he, Jesus raises us to a newness of life, an abundant life. And it's because of these signs, all seven of them, that this group of religious leaders gather. And this council represents the highest judicial, legislative, and executive power at the time in the nation of Israel. And so regardless of your political perspective, imagine if there were no checks and balances at all in this country. Imagine the same party controlled the White House, 100% of the Senate and the House of Representatives, and 100% of the Supreme Court. Not that it was a majority, 100%. That's this council, And we see in verse 48 why they are concerned. They're scared of the Romans. Remember two weeks ago, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. They wanted Jesus to take control and to rule as an earthly king. They wanted to put him on the throne to get these Romans out of here. And in a few short months since that date, they realized that Jesus is not going to rule like that. And so they begin to act. They're concerned the Romans will take away their power and their place and their nation. The place where they're gathering is the temple. Maybe the Romans will destroy it. They eventually will about 40 years from this point. They're concerned about their power that'll be taken away and 40 years from now the Romans will come in and destroy everything. They'll scared about their nation. And in 40 years, the Romans will come in and destroy the capital of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. The language here is about them though. It's not the sheep. They're terrible shepherds of Israel. And these guys cared more about their stuff than God's glory, their place in the nation than God's glory. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry exchanging the truth about God for a lie as Paul says in Romans a false God and the New City Catechism says this about idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness significance and security so like I said in the call to worship we, you know, our Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade and the people went to the streets and the people have protested because of their choices, their supposed health is taken away. Abortion is just one form of idolatry in our country. Why were there protests? Because people can't kill their babies in their wombs and they can't live the lives that they want to live. I saw some of the same words on placards at protests by taking away the option of abortion that they have taken away their power, their place, or their nation. They've said they've taken away our country, whomever they are. More on this later, but it will, as a good day for Vermont. I mean, sorry, it was a good day for our country, but Vermont still allows. it, And so, like I said earlier, we have work to do. But Jesus, he doesn't give us our idols. He cleansed the temple back in chapter two. They transformed the house of prayer to a den of robbers. The house of prayer is to be for the nations, as it says in other gospels, which is quoted from Isaiah 56, seven, a house of prayer for the nations, where Jesus cleanses the temple so that the nations can come in to worship. It's not about Israel alone. It's about all those lost sheep who come to trust and know and love and follow Jesus, the good shepherd. I saw a headline as I was looking at things about the news. Overturning Roe will change what this means to be a man or woman in this country. And I think the the reality that... Those who are thinking and using logic about this is that it will, because there will be more men and women in this country who live to take a breath one day. The Pharisees in this council may not understand the grand story before them, but they can see only one side of the coin. It's the coin they want to preserve their place, their nation, and so what are they to do? Before they can act a high priest, he speaks up, we'll see this in verse 49 to 53. You can look at that with me. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And so Caiaphas, he speaks up. He's referenced in Matthew, Luke, John, and also in the book of Acts. And so you history buffs in here can be reassured that this man actually lived. He was high priest for 18 years from AD 18 to AD 36. And so we get more and more certification that the events that took place in this gospel are true events with true people who really walked and lived during this time. Just like John included embarrassing facts about disciples that doubted him or rejected him, like Thomas and Peter, he includes these historical facts to give us more and more assurance of the things that are written in this gospel and in God's word. And so we see Caiaphas, he's pretty rude here. He says, you know nothing, and then he says, you don't understand. And I doubt you'd be excited if I came up here and I said one morning, hey, Cornerstone, you know nothing and you don't understand. It's bad leadership. He's being rude. He's being unloving. He is not being a good high priest. But he says that they know nothing about what is going to take place. He says it's better for one person to die than for the whole nation to die. It's better for Jesus to die on behalf of the whole nation so that the nation... The nation of Israel is not destroyed by the Romans, but he disregards Proverbs 17:15, where Proverbs says, "He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike, an abomination to the Lord." And so, feel free to apply this proverb to the world in which we live in. For Caiaphas, Jesus is an easy sacrifice to make, so that they can preserve their place, their power, their nation their role in Jerusalem. But we learn from John's narrative that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. It was a prophecy, John says. It was not a prophecy like we normally see in the Old Testament of a grand vision or a forthtelling. like this is going to take place because of judgment or disobedience of God's people. This prophecy was calling back as John was writing this gospel down, seeing what had taken place before him. When John heard these words of Caiaphas or heard of these words of Caiaphas, he probably didn't know what the implications were of this prophecy as they were all orchestrated by God. And so John interprets what takes place here by the power of the Holy Spirit as he's writing down this gospel for you and for me. Some years later, when John was writing this gospel, he interprets these circumstances. And it's much easier to look at what God has done through the rearview mirror than it is through the windshield. Especially when the Holy Spirit is helping. Looking through the windshield to see what God may do down the road is really hard for us to understand because we are not God. But if you have Bible scripture eyes, you can see what God has done and apply scripture to what God has done in your life in the past sometimes bad things happen to God's people for greater purposes like the man born blind it was for his glory that he was born blind so that Jesus would heal him that he would have sight the last couple years have been hard have they not? all of our lives have been turned upside down in some way shape or form maybe take some time to consider how God has revealed his glory to you in that COVID your 401k these days your job situation the relationships you have the chaos in our state capital or the capital of our country the riots that we saw last year and the hate that we saw in them has God done things in your life to reveal more of himself so that you might give him more glory has he led you to a greater posture of prayer that you just can do nothing other than go to him praise God for that Has God given you a greater desire to be in his word, to see what he has to say to you and to lead and to guide you? Well, praise God for that too. Has God given you a greater affection for other people, for those who are hurting? Maybe you're hurting. Well, praise God for that as well, an affection for those and a care for those who are hurting. And I don't want to minimize our heartaches. some of us have had some really challenging things that we've had to deal with. Struggles are real, but God's word shows us that hard things, like even Lazarus' death, God often uses for His glory. The greatest injustice in the history of the world is coming, the death of an innocent man for the sake of those who would believe, for you and for me. That's Passion Week condemned as a criminal Jesus will take the wrath that we all deserve for sin verse 52 says he wouldn't die only for the nation in a few short days but rather he would die to gather into one people the children of God that are scattered abroad that's us the gathering of the leaders desiring to kill Jesus would bring about the scattered children of God returning to their loving father to the good shepherd Israel hoped that it would be just for the sake of the Jews scattered after their exiles, but it's for more than those. It's for all who would hear the voice of the shepherd, believe and follow the good shepherd's voice. It's for all the nations, it's for all peoples, it's for all individuals who believe. It's for royalty it's for all the towns that surround the town that we gather in this morning who need Jesus as their savior. But even though that we're in Passion Week, it's still not Jesus' hour yet. We still have a few more days and we'll look at verse 53 through the rest of the chapter and see what takes place. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but when went there from the region to near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus knows this and so he doesn't walk around them. He isn't scared of them, but he waits until Passover where his death would have much more significance, which we'll get to shortly. God's sovereign hand is at work in all of this. And John says, many of the people came to Jerusalem to purify themselves for this festival, this Passover. They were looking for Jesus, not to follow him, but to tell the council where he might be so they could rest him and they could potentially put him to death. They're following the shepherds of Israel. They're not following the good shepherd. They're not listening for the voice of the good shepherd. And Passover was held every year in Jerusalem and people from all of the known world throughout the Mediterranean, they would descend upon Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. Pilgrims to offer a sacrifice to celebrate God's provision as they commemorated what God did in delivering the people of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. To be free in the land, the land that they were trying to preserve, the council did for themselves. And we see now full circle in this Gospel of John. If you remember in chapter 2, there were two big sections of that. Where first, there were ceremonial cleansing jars that were used to purify people that were filled with water that were turned to wine. And then the second half of that chapter, you see Jesus cleanse the temple. And as readers of John's gospel, we are to see that it all points to Jesus. That Jesus is the only one that can cleanse us from our sin. They came, remember, to cleanse themselves for the Passover. Passover can't cleanse us, but the true Passover lamb can. Jesus cleansed the temple for the nations to come in to worship. It was the pure spotless lamb of God, Jesus himself, who made it possible for all people, from all nations, from all tribes, to come to worship, to be gathered in as God's children by believing, which results in worshiping. For the nation offered a sacrifice, this Passover lamb, each year to commemorate what God did for his people in Exodus. We'll see that fulfilled in Jesus, prophesied by Caiaphas as the one lamb sacrificed, not just for the nation, but for all of God's scattered children. At this last Passover feast that John or that Jesus celebrates, John the Baptist's words from chapter one, verse 29, they come to fruition for the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will be sacrificed. And friends, that's good news. And so where do we go from here? How do we apply this text to our lives? Well, I said at the very beginning, where God deals with our idols through his great high priest, Jesus, who offers himself as the final Passover lamb. First, God deals with our idols. We talked about that a bit already. I use one example of idolatry in our culture. It's evident what some people worship other than god some are very vocal about it what about the stuff though we keep to ourselves when something is taken away from us i think it's easy for us to see what that idol is do we hold on tight to it maybe it's your political party or your representatives when they don't win or they win how do you respond Do we tend to think of a politician as someone who can fix all of our problems? They won't. Maybe it's your bank account. If you look at your checkbook, you can see where your money goes. What does that tell you about your priorities? What you worship? Would it show a bunch of stuff purchased for you? which is not a terribly bad thing. Would it show a bunch of stuff purchased to keep you safe? Which again, It's not always bad. Or would it show you a generous heart of stewardship? When you can't have your stuff, is it worth a bit of interest or maybe some debt to have it? A small sacrifice for an idol you might have? Maybe it's your freedom. You don't tell me what to do. Let me do what I want. Don't restrict how I want to live my life. If your supposed freedom is taken away, How do you respond? When we tend to think of idolatry in our culture, we think of this remote Indian tribe that is worshiping some carved image or totem or something like that. But Paul says that idolatry is much more significant. And it's something of which the wrath of God goes against in Romans chapter one. Paul says claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things exchanging the glory of God for anything is idolatry exchanging the creator for a politician, exchanging the creator for temporal freedoms, exchanging the creator for a bank account, exchanging the creator for anything is idolatry. It's the first of the 10 commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And I don't know what your idols are. I often don't even know what mine are until they get taken away. But think about it. What are your idols? What do you value more than God? It's an idol. The council was worried about their nation and their place and their ruling. What do you worry about most? What do you fear most? Maybe an idol for you. Jesus deals with our idols. Second, God deals with our idols through his good shepherd the greater high priest. Jesus is the greatest high priest. Not only have we seen the contrast between the shepherds of Israel and the good shepherds, we see the contrast between Caiaphas, this earthly high priest, and Jesus, the great high priest. So think about what a priest is to do. Not from a Catholic perspective where we go and ask for forgiveness and penance and all those things. The priest intercedes for God's people. People cannot approach God The priest has to do it on their behalf from the biblical perspective. That's what Caiaphas was supposed to do. He was to lead by example. He was to intercede for God's people. He was to help God's people in caring and shepherding them, offering sacrifices on their behalf for God's people. But he didn't. But Jesus does. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore... He, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation, which is payment for our sins of the people. Jesus did that. Or Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Whereas said, the high priest was at, supposed to act on behalf of men and women in their relation to God. Only the priestly line from the descendants of Abe, or Aaron were able to go and approach the altar in the temple. Where Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood. He's the gentle and loving priest towards you and towards me. And we look and he rather took the harshness and the wrath of God on our behalf. All we have to do is believe the gospel to receive that. The good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Where we all sin, the wages of sin is death. And God being holy requires a payment for sin. That's death. Where the sacrificial system was to bring about some of that forgiveness but Jesus who was without sin took upon himself the consequence for your sin and for my sin on the cross when the innocent Jesus died for guilty folks like you and me he dies and rises after three days and he gives us an abundant life he gives us a life we were meant to live an eternal life and all we have to do is believe in that to receive it and God calls us to live in a way that is in response to his love in obedience. But the pastor who wrote Hebrews reminds us that our sin is also paid in full. And so when we sin, we aren't given license to sin more and more, but rather we can find continued forgiveness through the great and gentle high priest that Jesus is. And so we live lives of repentance. We stumble and we falter and we continue to sin in this life, but that doesn't make it okay. But Jesus continues to welcome us in and he continues to forgive us. And over the course of a lifetime as we follow him, we continue to sin less and less. As the Spirit works within us, Jesus is the author and perfecter, but also the guarantee of our salvation. He's a great high priest. So God deals with our idols through his great high priest, but finally he offers himself as the final Passover lamb. Jesus is the greatest Passover lamb. Like a priest was to sacrifice an animal on the behalf of God's people, Jesus sacrifices himself, and we can worship him because of that. The one lamb who was to be sacrificed annually for the people of God to cover their sins is fulfilled in Jesus. And the lamb that was to be sacrificed was the best lamb. It wasn't the one with a broken leg or with spot or blemish as the Bible says, with deformity. As the offerer and the sacrifice, the system will be ended in Jesus. And Jesus' death is a once and for all sacrifice. No more sacrifices of animals are needed. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There are not enough bulls and goats to sacrifice for the multitude of sins that we can commit. We need a sacrificial lamb who from the cross shouts, it is finished. Those are Jesus' final words in the Gospel of John. It's finished. It will all be fulfilled at his hour. It will all be completed at the time of his final sacrifice for us. Those with deformities are not barred from approaching the throne of God. Jesus, being the perfect high priest, made it possible for all through his sacrifice to come to God. I love Paul's words in Colossians. He says this about this sacrifice. And you, plural, all of us, were dead in your trespasses in this uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with him Having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. And that's good news, friends. And I'll finish with this final quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I think it really helps to apply the main idea from our text this morning: that God deals with our idols through his great high priest, Jesus, who offers himself as the final Passover lamb. Bonhoeffer says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Idolatry. It is that dying of the old man, which uh, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ and union with his death and we give over our lives to death because he's the great high priest. He's the final Passover lamb. So Bonhoeffer says this, thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. That's good news. We have a good shepherd. Remember we talked about that. He leads. He doesn't drive us. He leads by example. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place on the cross for our sins. God, he is a faithful high priest. He is the final Passover lamb. But the grave did not hold him. And after three days he rose, he appeared to disciples, to even those who rejected him and doubted him and betrayed him. And he gives us grace but he didn't remain on earth he ascended to heaven and he is seated right now at your right hand ruling and reigning and interceding on behalf of us praying for us helping us he gives us your spirit to live in us to convict us to equip us to lead and to guide us to illuminate your word as we read it and submit ourselves to it. And God, we thank you that your son leads by example, that as he bore his cross up that hill, was nailed to it, died in our place for our sins, the once and for all sacrifice. We can rejoice in that. We wanna sing because of your mighty, glorious love towards us. But God, we ask that you would help us to live lives in submission to you of obedience. And when we stumble and falter, we know that we have grace. But God, we ask that you would help us. You would deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. And God, we thank you for the grace upon grace, as John says in chapter 1, that we receive through Jesus Christ. And so we stand and we lift up our voice. We worship you for your great high priest who sacrificed himself to take the penalty for our idol worship.